0: Book of Acts, chapter thirteen. Sunday morning, we're studying the Book of Acts together, and we come to chapter thirteen, verse four. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up to the aisles right now with Bibles, and wave to them, and they'll put one in your hand. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that gift a Bible. uh, Make that gift uh, of a Bible, a gift from the Lord to you this morning. And you should find that that Bible marked to the passage that we're studying here today. The word of the Lord, Acts chapter thirteen verse f- uh, four, and so being sent away by the Holy Spirit, referring to uh, Paul and Barnabas, they went down to Cilicia, where and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos. They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was bar who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for uh, Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God, but Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked intently at Bar Jesus, and he said, "O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness." Will you not cease perverting uh, the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went uh, around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed, and uh, when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord." Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for all that is bound up in it that you want to have come off of the page and into our heart. And we realize you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we pray that you take the truths that are found here, the realities that are found in this passage, and of the events that uh, this, all of this is described here and that you move it through 2,000 years of history and that you would make all of this very contemporary for us, Lord, and characteristic of our relationship with you, how we handle such situations, Lord, in our service to you as a part of the body of Christ. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Here we have the Holy Spirit's record of the very beginning of the very first of three missionary journeys by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul would ultimately uh, travel on three missionary journeys. It would cover a period of fifteen years within his life. And here now we get a glimpse at the start of the very uh, first one. Most Bibles, uh, when you, if you are given one <clears throat> and you thumb your way all the way to the back of the Bible, they usually have a little section that's kind of the atlas and a bunch of maps that help us understand where the various events occurred. And usually one of those maps, at least one of them, will be a map showing the three missionary journeys of Paul and what his first one was like, how the second one expanded from there, and so forth. It's very educational, and it's good to know as we uh, go through this section of the book of Acts to kind of uh, keep track of of the path that that they were on. First, Paul and Barnabas, they made what was a 16-mile journey from the city of Antioch that sent them out now as missionaries and and made their way to this great uh, Roman Mediterranean seaport known as Cilicia. At that seaport, they then caught a boat for the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. And we don't really know why they began their first missionary trip by going to Cyprus, um, but we might guess that maybe Barnabas had a little bit to do with it because he was uh, initially from the island of Cyprus. And so then having landed on the island of Cyprus, they then proceed, the text tells us, to cover a journey of 90 miles from one end of the island to the other, uh, stopping at various cities, major cities, and then going into the various synagogues that were located there, and then teaching the Word of God and preaching the salvation that is found uh, in Jesus. Cyprus was principally Uh, inhabited by Greeks, but at that time it also had a very, very significant uh, Jewish population. And in this early part of Paul's missionary journey, we notice a strategy that he will follow through all of his missionary journeys, and that is, number one, when he arrived in a new location, he would make his way to a major metropolitan area in an endeavor to establish a church there. Having gone to that metropolitan area, he would always go to a synagogue of the Jews first, preach the gospel and the word of God to them, and then only turn to the Gentiles if the Jews rejected what he was preaching. The third characteristic of his missionary... Uh, journeys and in ministry was that he always traveled in a group. And Jesus had sent the disciples out in his uh, incarnation in public ministry, sent them out in twos. He follows that pattern. And in fact, they're a group of three at this particular point in time, Paul and Barnabas and uh, John, uh, John Mark. Now, things get in the passage get super exciting when they came to the city of Paphos. And in the city of Paphos, This was where a dramatic power encounter occurred involving three men. The Apostle Paul, a man by the name of Sergius Paulus. What a name that is, isn't it? What's your name? Sergius Paulus. Hmm. You could sell something on TV with a name like that. So the second guy was Sergius Paulus, and then the the second one, and then the third, of course, is Bar-Jesus. And it is here... Uh, that the Holy Spirit settles down, I think, in, in all of this to teach us some very important lessons, I think, as Christians. Paphos was the capital, the Roman capital, of the island of uh, Cyprus. Sergius Paulus was the Roman governor appointed by the Roman Senate, the governor of that island. He's not an insignificant man at all. He would have been uh, very well known in Roman circles, uh, a man of the world, a man of education, he was the highest ranking Roman official on the island. Then there's Bar Jesus, who's described here. He was a sorcerer. This guy wasn't uh, a dabbler with the dark side. Uh, this guy was tapped into full evil. He is a representative, he is an active ambassador for the kingdom of darkness and for of the kingdom of Satan. Astonishingly, except that nothing astonishes you after a while, he's described as being a Jew. Uh, when his parents named him Bar-Jesus, the word Bar means son of, so Bar-Jesus is son of Jesus. His father's name was Jesus, the name Jesus or Joshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. The hopes that they attach to their son is that he would carry the message of Jehovah's salvation around the world through his life, but instead he diverts away from his uh, the intent of his parents and and from, you know, light and God and so forth, and he uh, became a, uh, a, a sorcerer. He's also described as a false prophet. In, in other words, he claimed to uh, represent God and speak for God and didn't. And then, sadly, it uh, would be a sad enough life on its own, but he somehow gets promoted to becoming the chief counselor of Sergius Paulus, the governor uh, of the island. And that's the position that he has as a counselor and an advisor. Now, pathos was the center in the ancient world for the worship of Venus. And Venus was the goddess of love. And in terms of uh, on a practical level, it was just simply an excuse to worship lust. And uh, so forget about Paul or whoever sang that in the late 50s or early 60s. This was a completely different take on on Venus in those uh, days, and the temple to Venus was located in Paphos on the island of Crete. In fact, uh, the worship of Venus was so strong uh, uh, on the island that it was uh, required, or certainly the pressure was put upon every young woman uh, at Paphos and at Crete, Uh, to at least one time in the course of their life go to the temple and present herself as a ritual prostitute to anyone who would have her and then go on about her life and that somehow this act of ritual prostitution would mean that the favor of Venus then would be upon her life. So we're talking about a very dark place on a lot of, of levels, a very superstitious place. And, and uh, Paphos was as dark and superstitious and demonic of any city as you would ever want to find yourself in or ever find yourself in, in the world today. And of course, the internet has made virtually the whole world the same uh, kind of place in terms of what's accessible there. Sergius Paulus, he got wind of the fact, he's aware of what's going on on his island. He gets aware of the fact that Paul and Barnabas are traveling across the island and they are teaching something. And he calls for a private audience with them. He desires to hear what it is that they're teaching. We're told significantly that he was an intelligent man here in the passage. And this, the Greek word that is used here means more than he was uh, just educated. You can be educated and not terribly intelligent. And the Greek word literally means to hold something together. In other words, this man possessed the capacity to carefully examine anything that would be put in front of him and then to reason it out until it either fell apart under the weight of his logic and his intelligence or until it stood uh, strong and complete at the end of his examination And, and then that would be something that he would look at as being worthy of being embraced as uh, as a truth, and so he possessed that uh, capacity, a mind that was quick to penetrate, to test, to understand. It's interesting, even though he has uh, he has uh, Bar Jesus as an advisor, and and Venus, he's he's governing at the headquarters of Venus and the Roman Empire, and the zillions and thousands of gods that were being worshipped in the Roman Empire. Clearly, he is a man who is still on a search. For the meaning and the purpose of life. And so he calls for Paul and Barnabas. There isn't a man or a woman harder for the devil to hold on to, and the devil's got a hold of this guy at this point. But there isn't a man or a woman that is harder for the devil to hold on to than the man or woman who thinks. The person who looks at life and thinks about it, has an inquiring mind, is honest about what they're seeing, and then honest about uh, the Word of God when it is proposed to them. The great saint of the early church who declared uh, rightfully, and it it fits for uh, Sergius Paulus but for anyone, and he cried out to God and said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. I know that my heart was. And Sergius Paulus still has a restless heart, though that will get solved before the passage is over. Notice in verse 8, while Paul was teaching him the Word of God, that he was resisted by Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus is used to this intelligent man probably bringing all kinds of people in to say all kinds of things to him. And it doesn't bother Bar-Jesus at all. But as Bar-Jesus is present now, listening to what Paul is now Saying he immediately recognizes that Paul's teaching was uh, a threat to uh, his deceptions in his worldview, and most importantly to him, a threat to his position to continue as an advisor uh, to the governor. And so, what Bar Jesus is listening to as he's listening, you know, kind of a fly on the wall related to all of this. And, and what he heard and what he knew the governor was hearing was not some uh, new variation of spiritual and moral darkness or some new take on old superstitions and doctrines of demons or doctrines of, uh, of devils. This was something dramatically different. This is a threat to him immediately and... And it was because it was light, and thus he attempted to keep the governor from hearing the Word of God and doubtless the, the gospel and then putting his faith uh, in Jesus. Paul now immediately recognizes this. Paul isn't Just because Paul's on his first missionary journey doesn't mean he hasn't been around the block a few times. He's been serving the Lord for a long time. He's run into every kind of person you could run into multiple times by the time we get to this Uh, place in his life. And he immediately recognizes what's happening here, and very significantly uh, we're told in verses 9 through 11, but in verse 9, filled with the Holy Spirit, he openly rebuked Bar-Jesus and then pronounced a temporary blindness upon him. And the blindness, I think, sometimes it's in the weakness of the culture that we're in. Um, you know, nobody can do anything hard anymore except somebody's going to make a bunch of placards and have a demonstration. I was listening to the news on my car radio this week, and and there was a news story about an alligator that was in one of the lakes in the in the Bay Area. Well people swim in those places. And, so, and it's not the natural habitat for an alligator, and so it was four foot long or whatever. And uh, so they brought out the animal department, and the animal department uh, killed the alligator and returned safety to the lake. Well, no sooner did they do that than there was a protest. Couldn't we just capture and release? Why did we have to kill the, the alligator? <laughs> and, and, and so here this department's got to come out, and the woman representing the department and has to explain to everybody that the alligator was too far away to be shot with some kind of a dart that would deaden it, and then we could fly it to Florida or whatever, and it's just like, oh, come on. I and mean, how soft and wimpy are we? But anyway, <laughs> some… <laughs> So I think sometimes people look at this and God smiting, you know, Bar-Jesus here with with blindness and, oh, no, what in the world? And, you know, they're calling, you know, one generation in our existence right now because of their inability to process truth or deal with anything difficult in life, um, generation snowflake. And uh, so… but this blindness that occurs here and the smiting of Bar-Jesus with blindness it's absolutely poetic justice. It's, it's a thing of beauty, actually. And here he is. He's already in uh, spiritual uh, darkness, and he's trying to keep other people in spiritual darkness with him. And so God says, well, I'm not going to do you any favors And what you're trying to do. I'll put you in a physical darkness as well. And it was a temporary blindness, in case any of you are really upset with me related to my comments there, it's just temporary. And I personally don't think that Paul was troubled by You remember on his journey on the road to Damascus when he was uh, knocked off his high horse, so to speak, and experienced his conversion, that he was smitten with blindness. And he realized that that humility and the vulnerability that he experienced for a number of days in that condition didn't do him any harm at all, but it did something good in him in hearing God's voice. And so he wasn't sorry for this. This was an opportunity for someone to realize, hey, I'm up against something and someone that is greater than me, and my God can't keep me from being smitten blind by whoever the God is of this person. And it was a time for him to rethink think some things, but unfortunately when we look at the passage, bar Jesus doesn't show any brokenness or repentance. He just seeks to find somebody to lead him by the hand. In other words, to just deal with the physical, you know, consequences of what has uh, happened to him and to navigate the blindness. Now, Paul's rebuke is a very, very strong one, and we're told in verse 9 that he looked at Bar-Jesus before he said anything. And the Greek word, it's a, it means to look, uh, gaze intently, uh, to set or fasten his eyes on so Paul turns, he's interrupted now, and he turns to this guy and he locks his eyes uh, on, on uh, to this guy. And here's this guy in Paul's eyes who's willing to go to hell himself and then take as many of his people as necessary uh, with him so long as he gets to hold on to his government job here and and hold this place of influence that he has for the kingdom of darkness. And as Paul watches this entire thing, uh, his heart just burns over uh, what it is that's happening here. And so his assessment of Bar-Jesus is there in verse 10. He called, told me was full of lies, a liar, a fraud, uh, a phony, uh, the, a son of the devil, not a son of salvation, an enemy of righteousness perverting the way of the Lord. And I like it in the NIV. I hate to do that, Tom, but uh, every once in a while i got to give the NIV kudos. But NIV says with Paul saying, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? And he just strips the phony mask off of Bar-Jesus in front of Sergius uh, Paulus, exposes him for who he is. Now, you would want to, before you did that, like at a family gathering, at Thanksgiving or at work or somewhere like that. You'd really want to make sure that the Holy Spirit uh, was telling you to uh, uh, to say uh, something uh, like that and to respond in that way. But candidly, this kind of directness and this kind of uh, clarity in dealing with the demonic realm is... Uh, to, is very refreshing uh, to me as in, in, I live like you do in a world that is, in a nation that is just filled with just hyper political correctness and the environment and all. And again, I've, I've mentioned it once or twice before, but I, I, I think it's laughable um, that uh, the comedians in the United States of America, there's probably no more foul mouthed group. Uh, in existence, and not all of them are, but the comedians in the United States don't want to go to college campuses anymore to bring their routine routine because the campuses have become so politically correct and everybody has so lost their sense of humor that they don't need the aggravation. Well, imagine what it is to be a Christian on those same uh, campuses. And so this kind of clarity, this kind of force and strength is, is refreshing for us to see, especially when we realize that Paul isn't just upset because he's been interrupted, The Apostle Paul is someone who understands the power of the gospel. He understands there is a heaven. He understands that there is a hell. He values a human soul. God has given him the audience with this man, and now he's being interrupted by this instrument of the devil, and so all of this comes out of his his zeal for God, and his love for Sergius Paulus. There's nothing calculating about this. There's nothing about the Apostle Paul who sits and looks and says, well, listen, you know, what, what should I do in this scene? Because, you know, it might just end up in the book of Acts. Somewhere in about chapter 13, I think. And I think if I say something like this, it'll have the kind of striking impact. It might, you know, meet the requirements of the editor of the Holy Spirit, There's none of that. This just comes boiling out of the inside of him and who he is by the Holy Spirit in the face of anyone that would stand as an obstacle to the gospel and to the salvation uh, of another human being while all the time presenting themselves to be a friend and a blessing uh, to that same person. There's nothing ecumenical about what Paul says here. He doesn't say to him, now, listen, Bar-Jesus, you've had some good points here. I never really thought about it that way, you know. I think I bring a little something to the table, too, if you don't mind and all. Maybe we can sit down and find a way to, you know, uh, unite the worship of Venus in Christianity or sorcery in Christianity or false prophets in Christianity. And I completely agree with the fact that as Christians in a pluralistic society and becoming more and more pluralistic. That we do have to become more and more winsome and more wise and more respectful in our representation of God uh, and the Bible to others and to the culture. But I also think that for every Christian that uh, does things like a sledgehammer, is a bull in a, in a China shop in terms of how they handle the Word of God, how they communicate with people, the gospel, how they treat people, and, and so forth, their willingness to listen to people and other perspectives to then gain a right to then speak uh, God's truth into that same conversation and and so forth. I think there are 10 who never say anything in the face of virtually any kind of evil or wrongdoing, have been silenced by the culture, silenced by the pressure. And then we convince ourselves that somehow we are expressing love uh, of the Holy Spirit by doing so. But it it was the great Christian statesman, Edmund Burke, who wrote famously and truthfully, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And I think it has an awful lot to say to good people and certainly to Christians in the age in which we live. Now, the wonderful result of all of this is that Sergius Paulus became a Christian. He was impacted first and foremost by the Word of God, and the passage makes it clear, though clearly he was impacted by uh, the miracle that was performed and the blinding of his his former counselor. Now uh, let's close here this morning with taking a a look at some practical lessons, I think, for our lives as Christians today from the passage. What we have here, and one of the things that I love about this passage is we've got a power encounter that is happening here. And I remember when I was a brand-new Christian, uh, at that time there was a term power encounter to describe... Uh, you know what was uh, what was going on here in Acts chapter 13 to describe this kind of a situation and then the term kind of got hijacked into uh, a little bit of wildness and so it, it became a term you couldn't use because there was too much baggage attached to it. But I always liked the term, and I never was willing to let it go, at least in my mind, uh, even though I wouldn't use it necessarily in preaching at the time. Uh, but I always liked the idea, the, the, how something is expressed here in terms of a power encounter. And a power encounter, and the power encounter is occurring here in this passage, is the collision of two kingdoms that are diametrically opposed to one another. You have a pow- power encounter, and that you have the collision here of the kingdom of God and then the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom uh, of the devil. And what you have listed on this page here, in terms of the conversation that occurs, what Paul does, what Bar Jesus does, and so forth—all of that is merely a physical manifestation of the reality of both of those spiritual kingdoms. That's what's happening. It isn't just something that's happening in the natural. It is two spiritual kingdoms have collided in the living room of Sergius Paulus. And now what is playing out is is an expression of the reality of those two kingdoms. I'm very fond of the, uh, the old story concerning the zealous young uh, Christian and the elderly liberal minister. And the elderly liberal minister uh, took his zealous uh, friend aside one day and said, listen, you talk about the devil and the devil this and the devil that. I've been a minister for 35 years and I haven't run into him yet. And the young zealous Christian said, has it ever occurred to you that it might be because you're going in the same direction? If you go in the opposite direction, you'll run into him uh, quite a bit. And I think that any Christian that is engaged in any significant way or even a small way involved in the expansion of the kingdom of God is going to uh, come to realize and learn of the devil's existence immediately and then ultimately to have it become like a new normal for your life. Uh, There's the famous story of Martin Luther. Imagine the spiritual warfare that was directed against Martin Luther, who God was going to use to birth the Protestant Reformation in church history. And there's the story of him waking up uh, from a dead sleep one night in his room, and he looked over in the room, and the devil himself was standing there. And he's reported to have turned over, looked at him, and said, Oh, it's you and rolled back over and went to sleep. That's the familiarity he had with the realm and with the opposition. There is a demonic realm, and God knows that Satan is real, and Satan knows that God is real. As James wrote, you believe that there's one God. You do well. Even the demons believe, though, and they tremble. There's not one demon that's an atheist or an agnostic. They are all believers in God. And it is only human beings who are at a loss in this regard in terms of the reality of those two realms. I think it's important to realize, very important to realize, that the expansion of the kingdom of God always happens at the expense of the kingdom of darkness. The expansion of the kingdom of God always happens at the expense of the kingdom of darkness of darkness. And as a result of that, there must always be a conflict or a battle or spiritual warfare or a power encounter of some kind, because Satan never just gives up what belongs to him, and what he has held possession of for a long time, whether it's power or whether it's dominion or whether it's an individual soul or an individual human being. And it's important to realize this. You know, when we share the gospel with someone or we share God's truth with, uh, uh, in any form It it isn't just a conversation that we're having with them that's represented purely on the physical level. There is always in that conversation a power encounter that is occurring in the unseen realm. In that conversation, you have two great kingdoms who are colliding in the spiritual realm in the middle of what we are doing in the physical realm. And Paul, who knew something uh, about this, wrote in, uh, to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, something that I forget way too often, and I don't think I'm alone. He said, "'For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places.'" It's not about what's happening in the physical realm. Nothing is won or lost there. It's all won or lost in the spiritual realm. And that's why he goes on in that sixth chapter of Ephesians to talk about the spiritual weapons that are effective in that realm, speaking of the fact that as Christians we need to put on the whole armor of God and the importance of prayer and intercession because physical weapons are useless in this battle. Only spiritual ones are powerful and invaluable. Second, in terms of lessons from the passage. Notice, too, that the spiritual warfare surrounding our lives as Christians should never, ever be a source of uh, fear in us. Sometimes it's so dominant in our lives as Christians, we get a little worried when it stops for a week. But it should never be something that produces any kind of fear or anxiety within our lives for the simple reason that our King and the kingdom that we 're part of is the kingdom of God is not marginally greater than the devil or marginally greater uh, than the kingdom of darkness, but it, God is infinitely greater that you can you can 't put a description on it, infinitely greater than the devil, and the kingdom of God is infinitely greater than the kingdom uh, of darkness. John wrote in his Uh, first epistle, and he declared to us as Christians, greater is he that is in you, that is the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, speaking of Satan in the demonic realm. Jesus was speaking to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and he declared, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and he was right and left, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Is not just what's happening in the physical realm, but what is it saying about the spiritual realm, what we're seeing in the physical. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, speaking of the devil, and then he will plunder his house? And every single time someone becomes a Christian, it is an evidence of what Jesus was talking about there. Satan is the strong man that Jesus is talking about, but Jesus is the stronger man, the only one that can plunder Satan's kingdom who is able to take from Satan what was formerly his despite every resistance of the devil in order to keep that from happening. People becoming Christians, it is very, very bad advertising for the devil. And Satan does everything that he can in order to keep that from happening. And as Christians, in Jesus' name, and there is no name like Jesus' name, We are to be confident and we are to be bold in every encounter of this kind with the knowledge that is is Satan's kingdom that must always ultimately yield uh, when we come up against it as a representative of the kingdom of God. Now finally, my, my third application, and we close with this, but very, very significantly here. I want you to notice that this entire battle centers on one thing, and what it centers on is something called truth, upon the truth of God, upon the Word of God. Paul is declaring the Word of God to the governor. Bar Jesus Satan's representative withstood them, seeking, we're told in the passage, to turn the governor from the faith, from the word of salvation that Paul was teaching. And this kind of thing happens continually. If you've ever done any amount of street witnessing or sharing with your friends or your neighbors or family members or whatever it is, this whole scene is replayed over and over and over again where you go out straight witnessing, for example, and there you are on a Friday, Saturday night or someplace at the mall or downtown or something, and there's groups of three or four people hanging out, and you go up and you introduce yourself and you begin a conversation uh, concerning uh, the Lord. And, and then so often in that situation, somebody is receptive in it. They're like uh, Sergius Paulus. They're an intelligent person. They still haven't found what they're looking for. And let's listen to what you have to say. They're not afraid of truth. They're not afraid of hearing something that they've never heard before or believing in something that they haven't believed in yet. They have a mind. They have the ability to say, Go ahead, lay it on me. I'll crunch it. I'll I'll, uh, you know, put it under the weight of my thinking and my rationale and the mind that has been given to me, and if it stands, it stands, and if it falls apart as nothing, then it's nothing. And there are still people that are like that, that are honest and seeking after uh, truth and meaning. And so you go into a conversation and you begin to talk and somebody engages and you realize this is who this is all about right here. And sometimes there's two or three other people that are around. And as soon as you're making some headway, one of the other people will speak up uh, it, 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 brilliantly with a question like this, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Or can God create a rock that is bigger than, the, uh, than He can lift? Sometimes a person will come from across the street, they're not even a part of the conversation, and do something like this. Or they'll mention some Christian hypocrite that they used to know, and they're trying to drag the conversation away. And you look at that, and and if I look at it solely in the physical realm, it just looks like this numbskull has come in and done this, and I'm trying to have a conversation. And then you get agitated, and then you get in a fist fight, and then you're on the front page of the Modesto Bee in the morning. Instead of just looking at it and realizing, every time I do this, I'm I'm causing two kingdoms to collide here. And of course the devil is going to send an instrument in some way to disrupt, and then even more importantly, to distract me from what it is that I'm saying. And the way that a Christian stays cool in an environment like that is to remember, what truth am I sharing here that so alarms the devil? that he's got to send some kind of emissary of his here to now try and distract the situation and stay focused not on the person the devil sends, but the person that you're talking to and stay focused on the truth that you are communicating to him. And it's very, very important to recognize the battle is over the truth. And this scene in Acts chapter 13, it's played on over and over again it, it, all around the world every single day where the devil's trying to distract someone from hearing the Word of God and, and then pulling the conversation in, in, into an, another direction. And so it, how it needs to be handled. Now, again... I know that in our increasingly pluralistic society that as Christians, we do have to become better than we have historically at listening to people, listening to what they have to say, um, and and engaging in an honest discussion with them related to the gospel. They can't be another scalp. They have to recognize that they mean something to us, that we love them, that we value their soul, that the relationship means something to us. It won't be, we just won't write them off if they don't accept Christ at that moment and, and so forth. All of these things that are I- important in our desire for them to know the truth of God. But it is also very important to understand that we will never, ever, no matter what we do, ever intellectualize a person into the kingdom of God. That is a unique work of the Holy Spirit, and it is a unique miracle of the Holy Spirit in His bearing witness to the truth that we declare and in, uh, the, in the Word of God in a person's heart. Paul wrote about this in a famous verse in Romans chapter 1, and he declared, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God not his arguments. It is the power of God unto salvation. A famous passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul speaking in the same vein, he said, "'And I, brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and Him crucified.'" I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. The importance of that realizing that it is God's word to take this truth and to give it life into people's hearts in the same way that he did for us. I like the old story concerning Walter Martin. He was, used to be known as the Bible Answer Man. He's in heaven now, it has been for a long time. When I was a brand-new Christian, he was on the radio every day, and, man, what a... He had memorized the Bible, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants. He had, I mean, it, what this guy had put to memory in uh, addressing as an apologist, the cults and the occult and so forth. But as a part of his radio ministry, he would also travel and he would do these meetings around the United States and around the world. And he would make a presentation from the Bible. And then at the end of the meeting, he would allow uh, people to stand up and ask a question, not to make a statement, because that wasn't, he wasn't there for that, but to ask a question. Then he would answer the question. And one man stood up, and it was a, a meeting in the Midwest. A m- man stood up and and uh, he, uh, he asked Walter Martin if he could say something, uh, knowing Walter Martin's policy, but he said, I, I, I think that what I have to say is important, and, and I think you'll be pleased with it to hear, uh, you know, the witness of it. And so Walter Martin allowed him to tell the story. When Walter Martin was a young man, long before he became internationally and nationally prominent, um, he decided very on, early on in his college years to go to the Watchtower, that's the Jehovah Witness, the Watchtower organization in Brooklyn, New York, to go and do a, uh, a tour of it, uh, so knowing that later on he might not be allowed into the room and, uh, in his ministry. And he received a tour of the entire thing. And, and then as he's leaving the place, he's walking past the man who is sitting at the desk at the entry of the building, and Walter Martin, and, and the man is is relating uh, this uh, this uh, story here. And uh, Walter Martin, as he's uh, you know speaking uh, speaking to him, and and he's about to leave uh, leave that particular uh, uh, room. The uh, this, I'll be with you in a second. <laughs> he said to the man. He said, If I could show you where Jesus declared himself to be God in the Bible, would you believe it? And the man said, It's not in the Bible. Walter Martin said, If I could show you where Jesus declared himself to be God in the Bible, would you believe it? The guy said, It's not there. It's not in the Bible. Walter Martin said, That's not the question I'm asking you, whether it's in the Bible or not. I'm asking you, If I could show you in the Bible where Jesus himself declared himself to be uh, the Son of God, to be divine, would you believe it? Because the Jehovah Witnesses don't believe in the deity of Christ. And the man stated that, that there's no such passage in the Bible, but I suppose if you produced it, I would have to believe Walter Martin turned to the first chapter of the book of Revelation and pounding on the man's desk, he said, I, quoting Jesus, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. The man refused to believe it. Walter Martin saw no change in the man's life at all, and he left. He had been faithful to the Holy Spirit, and he left it in the Holy Spirit's hand. The man said, here's the rest of the story that you could never know. He said, that night I went home and I tried to go to sleep. And as I lay my head on the pillow, all I could hear is, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord. And he said, I got on my knees on the side of my bed and I gave my life to the Lord. And that was 30 years ago. And this was the testimony. You see, you cannot convert anyone, but we can tell them the truth and then have great confidence that the Holy Spirit will do what he alone can do in a human life, bring conviction of sin and conviction of the truth of God's offer to the human heart. I remember Pastor Chuck Smith now in heaven, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and he used to exhort us as young pastors concerning the power of the Word of God, the power of the sword of the Spirit. And he would exhort us and say, it's just like in any battle. When you're in a battle with a sword, you don't describe the sword. You don't polish the sword. You don't defend the sword. You use the sword. And it's a, it is still a good word today. the writer of the book of Hebrews declares, for the Word of God is living and powerful. It is always that. It's a matter of whether we will believe it or not. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword Piercing to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. One more story. I like the story of D.L. Moody, the famous Christian evangelist in the United States of the 1800s. He came to Indianapolis in order to attend a convention on mass evangelism and he invited his song leader, Ira Sankey, to meet him at 6 p.m. on a particular corner in in Indianapolis. And when Sankey arrived, uh, you know, Mr. Moody asked that he would stand upon a box and play a couple of songs, and then D.L. Moody proceeded uh, to... Uh, preach uh, briefly uh, to the people, and then he invited the crowd, great crowd that had developed, uh, to the nearby convention hall, and pretty soon the auditorium was filled with spiritually hungry people, and he continued to preach the gospel to them. And then by that time, the convention delegates began uh, to arrive, and Moody stopped his preaching, and he said, "'Now we must close.'" as the brethren of the convention wish to come and discuss the topic, how to reach the masses. And I think that is a good word for us today as well. We can analyze our current situation to the point that we will become utterly paralyzed and to think that the situation is so complex that we'll never make a dent in it rather than just simply doing what God has called us to do and to trust in the power of it. Today, I think we live at a time in the history of our nation when the kingdom of darkness and the God of this age, Satan, is fully determined to be the sole judge or arbitrator in defining truth, and not only in defining truth but in defining the rules by which something is determined to be truth, or to be false. And it's interesting, as I look at the new rules that are being kind of tacitly but firmly being placed upon us, it's interesting that the one group that's specifically targeted is having nothing to add to the conversation concerning truth is Christians. And it's no coincidence. If you've ever felt as a Christian, it just seems like they're picking on us. Specifically, they're just picking on us as Christians. Everybody else seems to be getting a free pass on anything they say, no matter how ludicrous what they say is. Even Islam is getting treated with kid gloves, despite the atrocities that are going on all around the world. Maybe you felt something like that in recent months and years. It's no accident It is because only Christianity is a threat to the kingdom of darkness and a threat to its lies and its deceptions, and everything else in the world is either knowingly or unknowingly a concoction of the kingdom of darkness or a tool of it. And it's important that we must not allow the kingdom of darkness, the demonic realm, to dictate to us as Christians the terms of engagement and then to accept our appointed role of keeping our faith to ourselves and to sit silently on the sidelines. And refusing to do that is not pride or arrogance. It's our responsibility as Christians. God has a right to be a part of the conversation that is going on, and we are His voice in that conversation And I think that oftentimes we can tend to see all of this that's happening around us at such a rapid rate, merely in terms of the physical realm. We fail to see the kingdoms, the spiritual realm, that is the greater reality around the physical realm. And so as we look at all of this in purely physical terms, we conclude, well, it's just the way that things are now, or it's just the way things are going, and then fail to realize that this is merely what we are in the middle of, the latest version of the age-old battle between truth and lies, light and darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Don't get distracted by everything else. This is all about a battle over truth, and we possess it, and there is a world filled with Sergius policies out there who are still waiting to hear the truth that changed our lives, and we cannot abandon them to darkness. So let's be winsome, yes. Let's speak the truth in love, absolutely. Let's be gentle and respectful, of course. Let's be better listeners than we've ever been before. But don't forget to speak God's truth and his perspective, because you only win this kind of power encounter that is our portion as members of the kingdom of God with truth and with God's truth. Everything else gets swallowed up. Everything else gets smoked. And I'm not talking necessarily about how we witness to an individual, a Sergius Paulus. That's a different thing, and we'll talk about that another time. I'm talking about how to handle ourselves in the midst of the bullying and the intimidation of the age and the need to stand up for truth in the face of the interference of the demonic realm with what God has called us to do. The kingdom of God always expands at the expense of the kingdom of darkness, and there's always going to be conflict involved in that. And the most powerful weapon in this warfare is truth, and it is never more powerful than when it is also coupled with love. It is the same truth that changed our lives, and it will change the lives of others as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning in your word to snap us out of of what so many of us are prone to do and that is to just day after day process all of this solely on the physical realm and to lose heart and to cease to wear the armor and to cease to be discerning and so forth. Thank you for the reminder today of what's happening in the big picture, Lord, behind what it is that we see with our eyes. We thank you for the privilege this morning of being a part of the kingdom of God, your kingdom, the light, the truth, the beauty, what you have transformed our lives into as a result of your truth. And we embrace, Lord, wholeheartedly the responsibility that comes with being a part of your kingdom to not keep this to ourselves, but to take the same truths that are not theoretical to us, but that have impacted our lives from inside and out, and up one side, the other, and then to declare that in love and a concern for human souls to others. And we pray, Lord, this morning in this room, 4300 American Avenue, just a little nothing place on the face of planet Earth, but we love you and we know you, and we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit this morning, give us a love and give us a boldness, And give us a confidence in your truth that is greater, Lord, than any obstacle we are facing or any bullying or intimidation that we are facing as members of your kingdom, Lord, in this culture. Help us, Lord, to engage it with that boldness and with that confidence And to even have fun, Lord, and a sense of joy and anticipation as we do, knowing that your truth will never lose in such a conversation or such a power encounter. Help us, Lord, not to feel helpless in the face of all of this. Help us not to be bullied into silence, Lord. Give us your Holy Spirit to be like Paul as he was in this scene and as we see him elsewhere in the book of Acts. Make that our portion as well, we pray, and we ask it knowing that we have asked in accordance with your will, and so we receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.